So the theme I'd like to begin exploring tonight is equanimity. And just before we launch into it, I'd like to acknowledge, just like with every talk that we give, there's close to 100 people here in the room, and so we pick these themes. And for some of you, depending on what's going on, they may be more or less resonant or relevant. And I mention that because in my own experience, there's been times when I've been in I've had a really rough day, stuff's happened, I'm in a difficult phase of my practice, and then I come to the talk on, and it happens to be on equanimity, and I can think, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be experiencing. And I can subconsciously, unconsciously push myself to try and achieve some state that I think is equanimity, which is actually more like the near enemy of equanimity, which I'll be talking about soon. So this is an offering. There's no expectation that this is what you're supposed to be experiencing this evening. Because if you remember back on my overview of the four Brahma-viharas, one of the themes I wanted to highlight there is knowing when to apply which of the four different skillful mind states. And so... It's possible that at this time other qualities, maybe kindness, compassion, self-compassion, might feel more relevant. Nevertheless, I wanted to explore equanimity tonight partly because I've been exploring all these different skillful mental qualities that support the deepening of insight, qualities such as mindfulness and wisdom and the four Brahma-vihara states. And I've been presenting them in terms of this metaphor of the two wings to awakening, being wisdom and compassion. Compassion in this context being a kind of shorthand for all four of the Brahma-viharas. And this evening I wanted to focus particularly on equanimity because in some ways it's kind of the hinge point or the fulcrum between the two wings. It's an aspect of wisdom And it's a fruit of our insight practice. And it's also a quality that we can cultivate very directly as the last of the four Brahma-vihara practices. So in many ways, equanimity is the culmination of all the practices that we're doing here. It's a quality that's very highly valued in the Buddha's teachings and almost completely undervalued in the context of mainstream society. So much so that if you're like me, I'd never even heard the word equanimity until I came into contact with the Dharma. So what is equanimity? As a very brief definition to get us started, it basically means balance. The balance of the heart-mind that's completely at ease. There's no wanting anything. There's no resisting anything. So it's the capacity to simply be with what is in a state of deep acceptance, peace. So equanimity is a very powerful quality that helps us to navigate transitions and life challenges of all kinds, the highs and lows, the ups and downs, the successes and failures, or as they say in the Taoist tradition, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. 
Um, possibly some of you are thinking, well, that sounds great in theory, but you don't know what's going on in my practice right now. Deep acceptance and peace are about as far away as the moon. But the Buddha was very clear that equanimity is a quality that can be cultivated. And in fact, pretty much every practice that we're doing here leads in the direction of this quality of balanced ease and peace. And we can see this in the way that equanimity is included in so many of the numbered lists that the Buddha's teachings are organized into. So almost as a quick review, I'm going to give you a few examples of these lists, like Buddhism by the numbers, like a pop quiz. You can test yourself to see how many of these you remember. So first up is the other four Brahmaviharas. That's pretty easy. Metta, kindness. Karuna, compassion. Mudita, appreciative joy. And Upeka, equanimity. So equanimity shows up last in that list. And if you remember back to the diamond model of how these practices can be arranged that I gave in an earlier talk, you might remember that I placed equanimity at the top of the diamond because it's the balance between compassion and appreciative joy. It's what emerges when both of those are balanced and we're equally able to meet the joys and sorrows of life. You may also remember that equanimity is the last of the seven factors of awakening, those seven skillful mental states that come up when the mind is free from the hindrances. And when these seven awakening factors are completely in balance, they provide the best conditions for deep insight to arise. So again, a quick reminder, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy or rapture, tranquility, samadhi or stability of mind, and equanimity. Again, equanimity comes last. And it emerges out of the deep stability of mind that is samadhi, often translated as concentration. And this steadiness of mind in turn arises from the releasing of the hindrances. So when the mind is at least temporarily free from greed, hatred and delusion, equanimity is the natural result. Because there's no wanting, there's no not wanting, no resistance. And equanimity is not only something that we develop in the specialized conditions of a retreat like this. It's also something that the Buddha's teachings encourage us to develop in daily life too. So those of you who are familiar with the list of the ten parami, these are ten qualities of character that actually need the conditions, the rough and tumble of daily life to strengthen them. So these ten, quick run through, generosity, Sila, or ethical conduct, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve or determination, kindness or metta, and last place again, equanimity. So from that quick run-through of these different lists, we might see just how much equanimity is valued in the teachings. 
and also that it has many different flavors, different nuances in terms of how it can be experienced and how it can be cultivated. So tonight I want to focus mostly on equanimity in the context of insight practice because there's a powerful connection between the mental factor of equanimity and the liberating wisdom that is the goal of all of these teachings. So how is equanimity defined in the context of the suttas? According to Gil Fransdell, the English word equanimity translates two separate Pali words used by the Buddha, upekka, and this is quite a challenge. I need equanimity even to be able to say this. Tatra majatata. This is a compound word. So upekka, which is a more common term, means to look over. And it refers to the equanimity that arises from the power of observation the ability to see without being caught by what we see. And when well-developed, such power gives rise to a great sense of peace. So the Pali word upeka has a lot to do with vision, with clear seeing, which links it directly to insight or vipassana. And to me, this aspect of equanimity resonates with an experience I've sometimes had when I've been hiking in the mountains. So after a lot of uphill climbing, I might finally get above the tree line, and then I can look out over all the terrain below. And suddenly I see where I came from in a whole new context. There's a sense of openness and expansiveness because I'm not just stuck in my own narrow viewpoint anymore. And that change of perspective is experienced as a moment of release, a feeling of the freedom that comes from being able to see the bigger picture. So that's one way that equanimity can be experienced. The second word that's usually translated as equanimity, which is tatra majatata, points to a slightly different aspect of this quality. So again, according to Gill, he says, still more qualities of equanimity are revealed by the term tatra-majatata, a long compound made of simple Pali words. Tatra, meaning there, sometimes refers to all these things. Maja means middle, and tata means to stand or to pose. So put together, the word becomes to stand in the middle of all this. So as a form of equanimity, this being in the middle refers to balance, to remaining centered in the middle of whatever is happening. And this form of balance comes from some inner strength and stability. The strong presence of inner calm, well-being, confidence, vitality and integrity can keep us upright, like ballast keeps a ship upright in strong winds. So Gill uses the analogy of ballast, the weight in a ship's hull that keeps it upright. And in my own experience, I also think of equanimity as being like the keel of a boat. Because many years ago, I had the opportunity to live on board a small boat in a small town in Western Australia. And a friend and I had bought this boat while we were still living in New Zealand, and we hadn't even seen it when we bought it. 
So after a 5,000 kilometer or 3,000 mile journey to go and find our new purchase, it was more than a little bit disappointing to discover that our yacht was actually a broken down old wooden sailing boat, which is pretty much a wreck and completely unsailable. Nevertheless, we spent many months fixing up this yacht with the idea that we would sail it across the Indian Ocean from Australia to Africa, which did not happen. (laughs) But that's another whole story, and it's not so relevant for this exploration of equanimity tonight. The point is that although the boat was quite small, just 10 meters or 30 feet in length, it had a huge keel, that weighed one metric ton, or about 2,200 pounds. And one of my tasks was to sand down and repaint this keel while it was out of the water. It was made of lead. And as I was sanding it down, I kept wondering, why does this tiny boat need such an enormous keel? But once we finally got it in the water, I understood why. Because depending on the conditions, sometimes the rough waves, the strong winds had the boat really leaning hard over at times. And it was the weight of the keel that stopped it from capsizing. And it's the weight of the keel that also made the boat possible to steer it through the waves, the winds, the ocean currents. The keel allowed it to steer instead of just bobbing about on the surface of the sea. So equanimity is a bit like that. Like the boat we are subject to the changing conditions of life, the metaphorical winds and waves and tides and ocean currents. But equanimity, the keel, lets us navigate through all of them without flipping over or flipping out. At times, when conditions are strong, we might still find ourselves leaning hard over, but thanks to the keel, we don't capsize or sink. And even though we might intellectually understand the value of equanimity, for many people, this is quite a challenging quality to embody more deeply. This is partly because it's not a quality, as I said, that's much valued by mainstream society. So you don't often hear people saying things like, wow, when I got to the airport and discovered my flight had been cancelled, I had so much equanimity. Or, I really love listening to talkback radio because it helps strengthen my equanimity practice. (laughs) It's just not something we generally do. And in fact, the opposite, drama, is generally much more valued than equanimity. We're almost addicted to the highs and lows of life. And we tend not to pay too much attention to those times when we're balanced and at ease because those times are not threatening to our survival. So there's another reason I think equanimity is not so valued these days, and that's to do with the mainstream societal conditioning that I spoke of in my last couple of talks. How dominant capitalist culture tends to put a lot of emphasis on individualism and materialism. So we're almost programmed to orient to the world in terms of doing, not being. And there's a lot of pressure to have, to get, to gain, to attain, to achieve, to succeed, and become someone special. 
So not surprisingly then, putting aside our usual distractions and taking time to just be with our own hearts and minds is not something that comes naturally for many people. Some of you might be familiar with the famous quote by the French philosopher Blaise Pascal, where he said, All of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Which sounds so modern, but he wrote that in the 1600s. And since then, I think the ability of people to be alone with themselves without distraction has deteriorated even further. So some research psychologists at the University of Virginia Virginia and Harvard University did a study a few years ago to test how people would respond if they were left to spend time alone in a room with themselves. I think you know where this is going. (laughs) The participants were asked to spend up to 15 minutes alone in a room to just sit and think. And the only thing in the room was a device that would give them a mild electric shock if they pushed a button. (laughs) Before the study started, the scientists demonstrated on each participant what that electric shock would feel like. And each of them apparently found the shock so unpleasant that they would, said they would pay not to have to experience it again. But when they were left alone in the room, for between 6 and 15 minutes, three quarters of the male participants gave themselves at least one electric shock. And a quarter of the female participants shocked themselves too. So it's probably a good idea that we don't have one of those devices in here. (laughs) But on another level, I'm talking to the converted because all of you have a lot of capacity to sit alone with yourselves. I just wanted to put that in context to share that slightly disturbing information to get a sense of just how strong our individual and societal conditioning can be. So the good news is that equanimity can be cultivated. And in fact, whether we recognize it or not, all of us have already been developing equanimity quite consistently because it's an aspect of mindfulness. So pretty much every definition of mindfulness that we can find has equanimity built into it implicitly. So for example, Gill again, mindfulness is the cultivation of clear, stable non-judgmental awareness. Joseph and Sharon say, mindfulness means being aware of what's going on as it actually arises, not being lost in our conclusions or judgments about it, our fantasies of what it means, our hopes, our fears, our aversion. Rather, mindfulness helps us see nakedly and directly this is what is happening right now. And then Bhikkhu Analyo, who wrote Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization, his definition of mindfulness, keep calmly knowing change, which he abbreviates to four letters, KC, KC, keep calmly knowing change. So all of these statements sound quite similar to some of the phrases that we use to cultivate equanimity as a Brahma-Vihara practice. 
For example, may I learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. It's Jack Cornfield. May I embrace change with stillness and calm. May I deeply accept this moment as it is. Christina Feldman. May I accept and open to how it is right now because this is how it is right now. Kamala Masters. So I wanted to highlight the connection between mindfulness and equanimity because for some people equanimity can sound like a remote quality, a far-off goal to be achieved at some distant point in the future. But every moment of mindfulness is simultaneously strengthening this capacity of non-reactivity. So there's a reciprocal relationship between mindfulness and equanimity. Paying attention with a non-judgmental attitude strengthens equanimity. And equanimity makes it easier to pay attention with a non-judgmental attitude. So it's a win-win situation. We can also see a similar reciprocal relationship between equanimity and wisdom. And by wisdom here I mean insight the capacity to see the three universal characteristics of anicca, dukkha and anatta with more and more clarity. So we've spoken about these three characteristics quite a bit already, but again, a quick reminder, anicca, dukkha, anatta, the truth that everything we experience is impermanent. It's imperfect and it's impersonal. So when we understand the truth of impermanence, that everything is constantly changing, we understand the truth of dukkha, that nothing can give us lasting satisfaction, and we understand the truth of anatta, that all of it is arising due to impersonal causes and conditions, and it's not entirely our fault. It's also true that the more we resist this understanding, the less equanimity we experience and the more we suffer. So the degree of equanimity we're experiencing can give us a very clear feedback about whether we're living in alignment with wisdom or not. And as we start to explore equanimity more directly in our meditation practice, At least for me, in the beginning, what I tended to notice most clearly was the absence of equanimity. And this is okay, because if you remember the third establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, we're instructed to notice the presence and the absence of various mental qualities. So noticing the absence of equanimity is a very good start. And when we can recognize the absence of equanimity, we're training in recognizing what is known as its far enemy. So just like with the other three Brahma-Vihara qualities, equanimity has a far enemy and a near enemy. I'll come back to the near enemy, which is indifference, soon. For now, I want to focus on the far enemy, the direct opposite of the ease and peace of equanimity. In other words, all forms of reactivity, those proliferating mental reactions that are rooted in greed, in hatred, and in delusion. 
So the far enemy of equanimity is our habitual reactivity to the ever-changing circumstances of life. And in terms of retreat practice, I mentioned a few weeks ago these cycles of purity and purification and how easy it is to develop attachment to the purity stages and react with aversion when they disappear and we find ourselves in the purification stages. The more we hold on and resist, the more we suffer. So the key is to make space for the inevitable pendulum swings. And over time, that space helps them feel less dramatic. So in terms of the bigger picture, in terms of our daily life, not only on retreat but also outside these special conditions, the Buddha recognized this tendency to cling and resist in terms of a particular set of life circumstances that tend for most of us to trigger either wanting or not wanting. And these are known as the eight vicissitudes or the eight worldly winds. And this use of the metaphor of wind implies that these are impersonal, natural processes. Just like the weather, these conditions are constantly changing. And trying to stop that change, just like trying to control the wind, is completely futile. So on a worldly level, these eight worldly winds are pairs of opposites, which, as you'll hear when I list them, are where we tend to fall into binary reactions of either holding on or pushing away. So as you hear what they are, just notice any responses in the body and the heart-mind. So these are the eight, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and infamy. And on one level it's so obvious, instinctive even, that we want to only experience pleasure and pain, uh, sorry, pleasure and gain and praise and fame. And we don't want to experience pain and loss and blame and infamy. But that's not realistic. Have any of you in your lives so far experienced only pleasure and gain and praise and fame? Probably not. Yet consciously or unconsciously, this is what many of us are trying to achieve. So practicing equanimity can be a powerful antidote to this delusion. It's a wisdom training, because when we see reality clearly, we see the truth of impermanence, of change. We understand that these eight worldly winds are constantly swirling. There's pleasure, there's pain and pleasure again. Same with gain and loss. Praise and blame, fame and infamy. And accepting these changing circumstances allows us to have more peace of mind. Instead of fighting reality, we start to live more in accordance with it. And then we experience greater ease and harmony. So there's a famous poem from the Zen tradition that beautifully expresses the benefits of this balanced acceptance. It's called Jin Jin Ming, sometimes translated as trust in mind. It's a long poem, so I'll read just the first few lines, which many of you are probably familiar with. 
The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinion for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. And equanimity is the antidote to that dis-ease or disease. (coughs) So we can develop equanimity as a support for staying steady with the truth of impermanence, anicca. And we can also cultivate equanimity as a support for staying steady with the truth of unsatisfactoriness, of dukkha. The fact that nothing in conditioned reality is capable of giving us lasting satisfaction. And when we do learn how to keep orienting the heart and mind towards equanimity, we become less dependent on external conditions for our happiness. And that in itself brings ease. Most of us, though, most of the time tend to put more of our energy into trying to control the world out there, trying to manipulate outside circumstances and even other people to make ourselves happy. But as we know, we can't always control life like that. And sometimes, in spite of our best efforts, we don't get the results we wanted. But if we've been cultivating equanimity, we have more chance of experiencing peace, whether things go our way or not. So because of this inner training, we're not so dependent on outer circumstances to be exactly the way we want them to be for our happiness. And then we have the freedom to experience some degree of ease, even in the midst of painful circumstances. In many ways, though, this runs completely counter to our mainstream conditioning, which is all about being in control. And we see this showing up on retreat as a tendency to get caught in striving, pushing for results, for attainment, for success. And underlying all those motivations is the need to be someone, not just anyone, but someone who's in control. But to some extent, equanimity comes out of being able to relinquish control, being able to attune to how things actually are instead of how we'd like them to be. (coughs) So in the individual meetings, some of you have been pointing to the sense of ease and freedom that comes when we are able to surrender to what is. And somewhat paradoxically, when we surrender to the truth of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, the suffering of it lessens, reduces. So as an example of uh, surrender as an aspect of equanimity, I'd like to share a true story from someone that I knew here at IMS by the name of Lorna Kelly. So Lorna was a long-term meditator at the retreat center and the forest refuge, and some of you here may have been on retreat with her 
She was pretty easy to recognize because at least every time I saw her, she had a bright pink streak in her hair and she usually had blood red fingernails and toenails. She died a few years ago in 2016 and she had led a pretty interesting life which she wrote about in a book. And when she was younger, she had been a fine art auctioneer but she became dissatisfied with her New York life her career, and she gave up her profession in search of a more meaningful life. Eventually, she got involved with insight meditation. But before that, she experimented with different traditions, including Christianity, and she spent quite a bit of time volunteering with uh, Mother Teresa's centers in Calcutta. And at one stage during her Christian exploration, she decided that she wanted to go off into the Sinai Desert on a spiritual quest to visit a particular holy place that she'd heard about. So she made her way to Egypt and she hired a camel and a driver who said he would take her into the desert to find this special pilgrimage site. And Lorna and the camel driver set off together on the one camel for what? they knew would be quite a long journey. But after a fairly short period of time, the camel driver suddenly jumped off the camel and started running away. And Lorna was terrified, so she yelled at him to come back. But the driver just turned and shouted to her, the camel knows the way. And then he disappeared into the dunes. So Lorna was left alone on the camel, plodding along through mile after mile of desert, and she had absolutely no idea what to do. And at first she described going through waves of rage at the camel driver, and then anger at herself for trusting him. And then came waves of fear and despair with a certain knowledge that she was going to die all alone in the desert. And then miraculously, at some point, all of these different emotions gave way to complete acceptance. And she thought to herself, well, I wanted a spiritual quest. <laughs> that's, that's what I came here for, and I guess this is it. This is the end of my life. And she felt complete and utter peace in that moment. And then a few moments later, the camel arrived at their planned destination. And she realized that the camel driver had been right, and the camel did know the way. So she later wrote about that experience, and she said, In short order, I had known the anticipation of adventure, the terror of abandonment, the desperation of helplessness, the exaltation of spiritual grandiosity, the inevitability of surrender, and yet through it all, the simplicity of the journey. So perhaps some of you have experienced something a little like that, being here on retreat. We can go through those intense storms of reactivity and resistance and desperate attempts to get what we want. But if we can stay present with all of it for long enough, at some point, something lets go. There's a surrendering to what is. And at least for a few minutes, we might taste the ease and peace of equanimity. So we can develop equanimity as a support for understanding the truth of unsatisfactoriness, of dukkha. 
We can also cultivate it as a support for opening to the truth of not-self, of anatta, the fact that there's no fixed, unchanging entity or identity at the center of this whole condition process. And in some of my previous talks, I already uh, explored some of the ways we tend to construct this identity through our inner language that tends to solidify a fixed and permanent sense of me. And if we look carefully, we can see the suffering in this referring back and concocting and constructing that identity and how powerfully that interferes with the development of equanimity. So I think the other night Brian mentioned Shinzen Young's mathematical formula for dukkha or suffering as being S equals P multiplied by R. Suffering equals pain multiplied by resistance. And in my own practice, I sometimes change the R to I for identification. So suffering equals pain multiplied by identification. The more personally we take things, the more we suffer. And the antidote to this particular form of suffering is to keep consciously reorienting the mind back towards the truth of anatta, of not-self. And again, just a caveat here in the morning instructions a few days ago, I mentioned that when we hear this term not-self, it's very easy to fall into duality, binary, self, not-self, and think that the self is supposed to somehow get rid of itself so that it can experience not-self, and which only ties us up in intellectual knots. So rather than thinking of not-self in terms of a binary, it can be more useful to think of it as a continuum or a spectrum and to train in noticing the difference between those times when the sense of self is strongly activated and when it's quieter, more in the background. And when we really see and feel what it's like when we're caught in a strong sense of self, the dukkha of that becomes obvious and we naturally let it release. Conversely, when we really notice what it's like when the sense of self is less strongly activated, the relative ease and spaciousness and peace of that become more obvious, and we naturally want to stay there. So using the wisdom of the three characteristics helps to release reactivity takes us away from the far enemy of equanimity and as the far enemies of equanimity reduce we want to be on the lookout for the near enemy near enemies are things like indifference apathy disengagement disconnection and one of the challenges of cultivating equanimity is that because it is quite a subtle quality it can be easy to overlook and easy to misunderstand. So there's a common perception that equanimity is some kind of flat, blank, non-responsive, gray, colorless sort of state. And in popular culture, for example, sometimes people talk about someone being very zen. And usually by this they mean someone sitting there doing nothing while some kind of crisis is going on. (laughs) But this is not actually true equanimity. It's more like denial. 
So the near enemy is sometimes harder to recognize because it might seem like it's in the terrain, but it's a bit off in some way. And there's a trap with equanimity in particular that it can be quite seductive because from the outside or from a just an intellectual understanding, it can seem like equanimity offers us relief from feeling any kind of afflictive emotion. So especially in the beginning of Dharma practice, it can be tempting to misuse equanimity as a kind of escapism, as a defense against wanting to feel anything. And we might try to convince ourselves that we're just being equanimous. We're just being equanimous. But in reality, we're in denial of the underlying anger and despair, self-hatred, shame, and so on. So at least in my own experience, that was true. And it took me quite a while to realize that that was happening. And what helped me in the end to distinguish between true equanimity and fake equanimity was the body sensations in the body and this is one reason we put so much emphasis on body literacy tuning in to those more refined and subtle sensations in the body because it's these that can give us clues about what's really going on so for me one of the ways of recognizing the difference between real and fake equanimity is its energetic quality When it's true equanimity, there's a subtle vibration, there's warmth, there's an alive energy that's missing when I'm in the near enemy. So when I'm disconnected and trying to pretend that it's equanimity, if I pay attention, if I'm honest with myself, I can feel an underlying sense of flatness or numbness, hollowness. True equanimity is not deadness or disconnection or disengagement. It's actually a very refined form of responsiveness. One that sees clearly what's going on and knows an appropriate response. So again, there's wisdom to it. So as our insight practice deepens and we develop more stability of mind it becomes easier to see those constant micro-movements of the mind towards what we like and away from what we don't like. And we start to experience on more and more subtle levels just how tiring that constant movement, that constant agitation is. And instead of being so caught up in the content of our experience, we start to rest back into the space that surrounds it. So in some ways, this is similar to what Brian was pointing us to last night when he invited us to let the eyes settle back, let the ears settle back, let the mind settle back and rest in awareness. Metaphorically, we can think of this as a kind of figure-ground shift. So we move our attention away from the objects that are usually in the foreground of consciousness to the background awareness that knows them. And sometimes we can play with doing this almost as, a, as an exploration, as a training to notice this in different ways. So in one of my former lives, I used to be an architect. And as an architecture student, part of our training was to develop sensitivity to space. 
And I still remember there was one drawing exercise where we were asked to draw the space of a room without drawing any of the things in it. And you might do that imaginatively right now by just trying to be aware of the space here and not so much the things, the people in it, the cushions, the people, the Buddha figure and so on. Can you let the objects move to the background of your awareness and see if the space can come more to the foreground? And as you do this, you might notice if it has any effect on the mind when you tune into the space of this room, or perhaps even beyond to the space, infinite space. We can explore our minds in a similar way. Again, most of us tend to get so caught up in the objects or the contents of our minds, the emotions, the dramas, the vicissitudes of wanting and not wanting, and we lose connection with the awareness that's knowing it all without entanglement. So this is the kind of awareness that Guy was guiding us towards in the big mind meditation the other morning. And again, it's making that figure ground shift so that the contents of the mind move to the background and the awareness moves to the foreground. So playing with shifting the balance of our attention like this can invite us into the calm and quiet of equanimity. And at least at first it can take a bit of getting used to. So quite often in the individual meetings people might tell us something like, Well, nothing's happening anymore. Now what? But if we inquire together about this experience of so-called nothing, it can often reveal all kinds of more subtle, skillful mental qualities, perhaps tranquility, stability of mind, spaciousness, ease, and of course, equanimity. So in some ways, at this stage in the practice, we really need... a a kind of a deep listening, kind of deep listening I talked about the other week where we're really tuning in to the mind's micro-movements towards or away from anything and learning to recognize the stilling of those micro-movements, the stilling into the deep peace of equanimity. So as I was putting this talk together and thinking about deep listening as a support for equanimity, I stumbled on a piece of writing about the American composer, music theorist, artist and philosopher John Cage. He was a student of Zen Buddhism as well as Indian philosophy. And some of you might know of his most famous work, which is a piece known as 4 Minutes 33 Seconds. So here's a description of its first performance in 1952. This description is by the music critic James Pritchett. He says, Virtuoso pianist David Tudor sat at the piano, opened the keyboard lid, and sat silently for 30 seconds. He then closed the lid. He reopened it, and then sat silently again for a full 2 minutes and 23 seconds. He then closed and reopened the lid one more time, sitting silently, this time for one minute and 40 seconds. He then closed the lid and walked off the stage. That was all. 
So you might imagine how that was received the first time it was performed. And the critic uh, describes it. He says, this piece can be difficult for audiences. (laughs) Bit of understatement there. Sitting quietly for any length of time is not something to which people are accustomed in Western culture in general, much less in a concert hall setting. That tensions will arise with controversy and notoriety following is only natural. Confronted with the silence in a setting we cannot control and where we do not expect this kind of event, we might have any of a number of responses. We might desire for it to be over or desire for more interesting sounds to listen to or we might feel frightened, insulted, pensive, cultured, baffled, doubtful, bored, agitated, sleepy, attentive, philosophical, or, because we get it, a bit smug. (laughs) So does that sound like some of your experiences in meditation? And do you have a sense of how in the apparent silence, deep listening might help release some of those more habitual reactions into equanimity? So John Cage pointed a little bit in this direction when he said, wherever we are, what we hear is mostly noise. When we ignore it, it disturbs us. When we listen to it, we find it fascinating. So our habitual reactions are noise, but listening transforms the noise into something valuable. So as I was reading about the performance of this so-called silent piece, I couldn't help wondering how I might have responded to it if I'd heard it in that first audience. It's different now, of course, because we know that it's a a non-performance piece. Perhaps in some ways similar to the silent meditation that we've been doing here, or perhaps quite different in some unexpected ways. So to close our exploration of equanimity this evening, I thought it could be interesting to offer a performance of 4 minutes 33 tonight. But then I thought, well, maybe this work is copyright, so to be safe, instead I'm going to offer a tribute to John Cage. And it's, this is going to be the world premiere of a piece that I composed compose myself that's called 3 minutes 44. <laughs> so are you ready? I'm going to use a timer to make sure this is authentic. So instead of opening the piano lid, I'm going to start the timer.
under what you noticed. You're in silence, so you can't tell me now, but I'm guessing maybe you noticed some movements of the mind, perhaps some quite subtle ones, maybe some not so subtle, perhaps also some moments of equanimity. So to close, I'd like to highlight one more time this connection between equanimity and freedom in a famous teaching that occurs quite a few times throughout the Pali Canon. And Dawn shared it with us in her talk a couple of weeks ago, but I'd like to offer it again in a slightly different translation. It's attributed to the Buddha in a teaching he gave to Ananda from the Greater Discourse to Malunkya Putta. This is peaceful. This is sublime. Namely, the stilling of all formations. The letting go of all attachments. The destruction of craving. Fading away, dispassion. Cessation, nibbana. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.